0: Thanks, Johnny. Um, In 1945, Prime Minister Winston Churchill came onto the radio to announce the following. At 2.41am, the representative of the German High Command signed the act of unconditional surrender to the Allied Expeditionary Force. The Second World War was over. Nearly 6,000 miles away in Japan prisoners of war were beginning to hear the news. A colonel, stuck in a large camp since 1942, was also listening on a tiny little radio receiver that they'd botched together in secret, hidden in the camp latrine. They'd built the radio receiver out of tin foil, scrounges of wire, string, even tree bark, The prisoners of war out in Japan faced slave labour on a starvation diet and in hostile environment. Many died. Many died through malnutrition and disease. Awful punishments were handed out for the most minor breach of camp rules. But as the rumour began to trickle down into the Um, war camps, hope began to grow because no longer were the British people subject to this bondage. The war was over and it was only a matter of time until their rescue and release and yet all around the world people were waiting because it took time for the news to trickle trickle down People were living like it was still wartime. Teruo Nakamura was a Japanese soldier. He lived 29 years in the jungle after the end of World War II, hidden away as though his country was still wrapped up in warfare. The moment he he came out into the open, he was met by 8,000 people cheering as the moment was played on national TV. He'd been freed from the bonds of war for 29 years, but he'd lived with that same frustration. And we're going to see this afternoon as we look at Romans 7, please do keep it open. It's like Paul is saying, you don't need to live with the frustration and bondage of the law anymore. Look look down, chapter 7 begins with a rhetorical question. And it's like Paul's got an element of frustration, impatience in his tone. Do you not know? You do know. I'm writing to people who know. Look at verse one. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, From I'm writing to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. What's the question? What's the point? Do you not know? You don't need to live like it's law time anymore. The law only has authority over someone as long as they live. What do you mean? Well, to have authority over means to be subjected to its way of life, for it to be the master. Just like the prisoners of war in Japan, war was the very thing that defined their day-to-day experience. Paul describes what it was like to be controlled by the law. Throughout the chapter, he uses different descriptions for the same thing. Under the authority of the law, bound by the law, in the realm of the flesh. It's being constantly aware of your shortcomings and unable to do anything about them. It's what we see in the Old Testament a repeated pattern, a cycle. Time and time again, God's people failed to observe their terms of God's conditional promises. They said they wanted to take God seriously, but ultimately they couldn't deliver. Maybe you've experienced that feeling in the past of thinking, I'm going to set out to take God seriously in this area. I'm going to do this. I'm going to sort this out now. The reality of the person without God is that deep down, even if you know simply something isn't quite right, you just can't help yourself. Even when it brings frustration, turmoil. Actually, in that situation, becoming more familiar with the law, becoming more familiar with what God demands of people. It doesn't help. It only makes it worse. It's living under the law to only face failure and frustration. So here's the question that sets up chapter 7. Don't you know? You don't need to live like it's law time anymore. Why? Well, have a look down at verse 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. This is how Paul's illustrating the point that he makes. The main point of the illustration is... Is that only by death is someone released from the law? He's not here particularly making a case for a doctrinal position on marriage. So that's not what we're going to major on. But look at verse 1. He assumes a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. That's what he says. But verse 3 if her husband dies, she is released from that law or bond. The marriage bond is dissolved as the husband dies. The point Paul's making for his illustration, death dissolves the bonds of law. So if death is the solution to that frustration, that cycle of failure, What does he actually mean? What death? How is that good news for us? Look at verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law, through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. See the death Paul's talking about? It's dying with Christ. We saw that so clearly a few weeks ago in Romans 6 for we know that our old self is crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. The law as we found in Romans 6.14 confirms and seals our bondage to sin. As long as the law governs us there's no possibility from, of release from the bondage of sin. The only release from that bond is to die with Christ. Die with Christ. Die to the law. But maybe you've been coming to town church for some time now. And you look at the Christian faith. And you think, yeah, I, I want that. And so you've tried to do some Christian things that you see. Good things. But deep down, it's really frustrating. Because the things that you think and feel and do that no one sees, they are not changing. There is nothing you seem to be able to do about it you know they're not right but you consistently choose them anyway why would that happen is it because you could still be in bondage to sin Paul says you need to die with Christ only death dissolves the bond of law. You see, that's the picture of frustration that verse 5 depicts. Have a look. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. This is the frustrating picture of the person that has not yet come to trust in Jesus. Look, there's a few terms to clear up. The flesh, what's Paul talking about? The flesh is the human nature as controlled and directed by sin. So being in the realm of the flesh is referring to the period where sin exercised complete dominion. So we were in sin. So when we're in the realm of the flesh or when sin exercised controlling power over us, what happened? Have a look at verse 5. The sinful passions... Aroused by the law, we're at work in us. Or have a look at verse 8 and verse 11. It says, sin sees the opportunity afforded by the commandment. Sin sees the opportunity afforded by the commandment. i tell you what that's like. You know those um, speed signs that adapt their... They say the number. That you're of the speed that you're going as you approach them. There's one uh, as you go into Launceston. I went past it on my bike actually today, and it tells you what speed you're going. I love them. I love them because when I'm on my bike, you can imagine that's the moment where you go foot down. Let's get the biggest number I possibly can. I'm going to go flat out. But my theory about those signs is they're next to useless because if you're attempting to keep the speed limit, then a static sign would do the job. They're just fine. But, if you're not attempting to keep the speed limit, this sign is just a bit of a novelty factor, isn't it? The sign affords you the opportunity to indulge in breaking the law. I speak from not personal experience, but I know... (laughs) There are drivers out there that see those signs and go, Oh, that sign, that's in a a little tight bit. I wonder what is the, the, the biggest number I could get. The law makes you aware of sin. And the flesh takes that as a challenge. And what does it do? It bears fruit for death. You see, in the realm of the flesh, under its bondage, sinful passions, encouraged by the law, bore fruit for death. That's what verse 5 says. But look at verse 6. Here's the big contrast. Live with Christ, live with the Spirit. Look at verse 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see, if we trust that Jesus' death and resurrection are effective for us, then we were united with him in his death. We have died to our former life, to what once bound us. And so we have been discharged from the law. We've died to what we were held by. The law's bonds have been dissolved. It no longer has mastery over us. So that we now serve in a new way of the spirit. You see that in verse 6? So that we now serve in the new way of the spirit. Of the Spirit. That's the result. You see the word so there in that sentence that holds together the first and second half of the sentence? So is a funny little word. It's a preposition that in English can mean both purpose and effect. Look at the two sentences coming up on the screen. The first is a purpose use. I climbed on a chair in the kitchen so I could reach what was on top of the cupboard. That was my purpose. That's why I did it. The word in the sentence communicates the relationship between the first and second half. It's one of purpose. That's why I did it. But you see the second sentence? My child was balancing on a chair in the kitchen so he fell off and hurt himself. Probably see why he was uh, standing on a chair, copying someone else. But you see, it's not a purpose. My child was never stood on the chair so that he would hurt himself. That wasn't the purpose of him standing on the chair. That was the effect. That was the result. That's what happened. Do you see the word the same word communicates two different things as it holds those, those two sentences together? Obviously the child doesn't balance on the chair intending to fall on the floor. That's not the purpose. But you see, we have to work that out as we read it. Normally we would put the word that after so, which gives us the indication that it's a purpose clause. So you could say, I climbed on a chair in the kitchen so that I could reach what was on top of the cupboard. That makes it quite clear. But you see, look down at verse... Uh, 6 we're not helped by the that because the original language it gives us a pretty clear indication that it's an effect this means you could read the verse to say we have been released from the law and as a result we serve in the new way of the spirit but maybe you're thinking why on earth has Simon decided now to try and take up grammar um, look, here's why it's important. Because this verse, it doesn't just describe the desire or the intention of someone who trusts in Jesus. It's not about effort. Look at the screen. From that sentence, the first sentence, we don't know if I was able to reach what was on top of the cupboard. We don't know if anything was on top of the cupboard. That was my purpose, but we don't know. But we know the second sentence, "The child fell off the the chair." And we know, for certain, if we trust in Jesus, we serve in the Spirit. We are not subject to the frustration of the law and the bondage of the law. This describes the normative experience for the Christian. That is the effect of dying with Christ and rising with him. And so we live as people controlled by the Holy Spirit, not controlled by the law. That's what verse 6 says. The Holy Spirit is a person. Permanently at work in us at home in us he helps us he convicts us of sin he enables us to speak about Jesus he gives us wisdom he guides us in truth he makes us more like Jesus he gives us hope he comforts us he equips us for works for God's glory he brings unity to the church and this is the result, not just the intention of being under the control of the Spirit and not the law. Well why is this section here at the beginning of chapter 7? It's giving us the absolutes. It's giving us the big picture, here's the forewarning. The rest of chapter 7 It gets a bit complex. If you've read it before, you'll know. You'll probably remember it as we get to later on. And for some, there's disagreement on whose experience it talks about, whether it's the Christian or not. But these few verses, they frame the rest of the chapter because the person who doesn't trust in Jesus is in bondage. The person who doesn't trust in Jesus is a slave to sin with an inability to to bear fruit except for death. But that means the Christian who has died with Christ has a different story. So here's the implication of the absolute for us. The Christian can never say I was completely helpless in the face of sin. The Christian can never say I've just got to face up to the fact that that sin will never change. The Christian can never say actually when it came to that sin that I just did there was nothing I could do. The Christian can never say I don't have within me the self control to do that or to not do that. That kind of hopeless frustration is only legitimate language for someone who's still in bondage someone who is a slave to sin you see as we begin Romans 7 as we spend a couple of weeks in it at the very least that tells us that the rest of Romans 7 doesn't describe the total and regular experience of the believer the normative experience of the Christian, is that they are released from the bondage of the law, the frustration. And as a result, they produce the fruit of the Spirit. If you trust in Jesus, you are no longer helpless. You're no longer slaves. No longer in bondage. No longer unable to do anything about sin. What a joy to know that power is in us. In the next few weeks we'll get into some of the complexities. To what degree we should expect to face elements of this frustration in our battle with the flesh. But know this. Our overriding experience as Christians won't be a complete cycle of frustration because if we have died with Christ we no longer need to live that way. We just won't. We have the power within us. The bond, the bondage to sin has been broken And so we can have joy, even in the face of struggle with sin. We don't need to let it overwhelm us. We don't need to let it get us down. We can have confidence. Because that work in us is the Holy Spirit who will bear fruit. Let's pray.